This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Waltons, Aluma Trailers, Onyx Hunt, Nutrisource Pet Foods, and by Chief Upland. Today, we're talking about important issues that face America's wild birds and what we can do to fight on their behalf. Josh Tapman is my guest. We'll dig into a controversial Wyoming sage grouse farm bill, along with other conservation issues that you need to know about. Plus, we'll chat about a few adventures that might wind up on your bird hunting bucket list. Nutrisource Pet Foods just launched a new product that can give our active hunting dogs a big boost when they need it most. It's called Kombucha. Nutrisource Kombucha, inspired, of course, by kombucha, is a savory, meaty bone broth topper that's packed with activated postbiotics from a fermentation product that thrives in the gut to promote a healthy gut ecosystem for digestion support. That's a mouthful. But what it means for us bird dog owners is that we now have a healthy topper to pour over our dog's food if they're ever stressed or won't eat while on a long hunting trip. Kampucha is offered in three flavors, turkey, beef, and chicken, and comes in a 12-ounce pouch. Nutrisource high-performance dog foods provide exceptional healthy nutrition for active dogs of every breed, just like my dog, Daisy. Now they have a topper that gives our four-legged hunters another edge when they need it the most. Check out their full lineup of dog foods at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton, as always, is our producer. Brandon, we are counting down the days to heading to Omaha, and you're coming with. I'm excited about that. How do you feel about going to Pheasant Fest, and have you ever been to one before? Yeah, I'm pretty excited to go out to Pheasant Fest this year, but it is not my first Pheasant Fest. I actually was at one with you, Travis, a couple years ago when we first started the podcast uh, in Minnesota, I believe. That's right. That's right. It was fun. It was a good time. Yeah. And we are going to have a live show on Friday night, March 11th at 6.30 p.m. I believe that's the time that I've been told. We're going to have the show at the Brickway Bar, which is just, I want to say, two blocks from the main convention center that uh, Pheasant Fest is being held at. So, Brandon, you've done these live shows before with some of our other uh podcast hosts. What am I getting myself into here? You're getting yourself into a fun time. Live shows are a blast to do. I do them with some other sports shows. Um, will People will be able to ask you questions. We'll have a mic set up. Um, and it's just a fun overall experience to be able to do a show with you know listeners of it and maybe even have a beer with someone. Right on. I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping that, well, I, Pheasant Fest is just kind of like, it's a, all of us that have the same interest. We all gather. There's the short, the stories that are shared. I usually lose my voice by the end of it. This year, I for surely will because I'm given a presentation Saturday on one of the, on the path to the Upland stage at 1130. I've talked about it the last couple of weeks about raising a family in the outdoors. I'm excited about that. I'm also emceeing the Saturday night Pheasant Fest banquet. Uh, that to me is just like this huge honor and I'm excited about it. Uh, I talked to Bob St. Pierre two or three days ago and there are over 1200 tickets sold for that banquet. So my nerves are already starting. Uh, but I think, you know, I think it, it will be something that someday I'll look back on and say, you know, it's pretty cool. Um, and so I always, 
I always uh, battle through the fears of uh, anxiety when it comes to these kind of things. Uh, believe it or not, I do get very nervous speaking in front of a lot of people. I think that's human nature. So I'm going to do my best. I know I'll be talking to a lot of you that night, listeners of this podcast and uh, just diehard Upland bird hunters. I'm looking forward to it. So if I make mistakes, I apologize. Um, but then just in our booth too, at our booth, we'll be there uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And over the years, I've met so many of you guys and it's been so much fun uh, just to hear your stories, share your, um, you know, about your dogs and the places you've been and things that matter to you and things that you think we can do better or that you enjoy. And I, I want to keep that coming because without your input, without the input of everybody that listens to the show, I don't know if I'm talking about things that matter to you. Um, so that that open dialogue is is just really something that I appreciate and I look forward to that. Uh, so please come out to the Brickway Bar and join us Friday night. Uh, we're looking forward to that. I, I will also mention uh, Pheasants Forever does have a Friday night banquet going on as well. And if you haven't already signed up for that, uh, it means you won't be joining us and that's okay. Um, but there's, you know, a big banquet on Friday night and then the, the massive one is Saturday night as well. So you will learn more about that on the Pheasants Forever website. Uh, wherever you go, you're hopefully going to have a great time if you join us. It's the biggest upland party upland bird hunting party in the world and we're counting down the days it'll be here and and just uh i feel like i'll go to sleep and it'll boom we'll be in omaha and looking forward to it brandon well uh we do spend a lot of our time on this show celebrating bird hunts and bird dogs we discuss how to become better hunters find more birds train our dogs share cool opportunities odd stories like somebody taking my dog things like that um, we discuss the importance of our role on the landscape from time to time, but I don't think we fully, a lot of us, I don't think we fully understand how important each one of us are in the big hunting picture or how much of a difference each one of us can really make, which is why I'm excited to have Josh Tapman on the show today, because conservation is extremely important to Josh's life. And we have a lot of important topics to cover. So Josh, uh, I appreciate you taking the time today. Um, I know you have a lot of amazing stories that you can share and adventures that you've been on, but you ready to just jump right in and get do the heavy lifting and get into the, the conservation issues? Let's do it, Travis. And thanks for having me on. Yep. Uh, before, before we jump in, I guess, I just want to say, Josh, you live in Wyoming. What part of Wyoming do you live in? I live in North Central Wyoming. Um, okay. Yep. How long have you been a bird hunter? I started bird hunting in high school, kind of casually. Uh, I grew up in a family that didn't hunt. So okay. it was kind of an adult onset hunter, as they say. Um, and I kind of got into bird hunting more seriously, um, kind of in my college years, I guess. Um, yeah. So gotcha. where, where we live in Wyoming now, I've lived here about 15 years and have have bird hunted quite a bit over that time. Gotcha. And I have hunted in Wyoming one time. I wish I could say 100 because it's just one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most underrated upland bird hunting states. Just the amount of public land, the resource that exists out there. I don't think a lot of people necessarily consider it a destination, but... You obviously know how great it is. Um, 
and just the the variety of birds out there. But you also know how important our role is on the landscape out there, which is what we're going to get into. Let's specifically jump right into the discussion about a current uh, sage grouse farm bill, SF61. Josh, can you explain what this bill is and why it matters so much for the future of America's upland birds? Absolutely. So um, first off, I'm not a legislator. (laughs) Uh, I'm not a biologist. Um, So basically my familiarity with these topics are just through my own interest. Um, So with that disclaimer, so yeah, so um, Senate Bill 51 that's in the Wyoming State Legislature for consideration right now is a bill that eliminates a, um, a sunset period on a previous bill. Now, that previous bill a few years ago authorized the establishment of an experimental sage-grouse uh, bird farm. Uh, this, this bird farm is also located in north-central Wyoming and is operated um, as a, a private enterprise. Um, although, uh, from what I understand, a lot of the funding for the sage-grouse work is, is uh, coming through a nonprofit. Um, so, at fir- so for people that don't know, sage grouse are on the decline. They they are one of the the more at risk native grouse species on the continent, mm-hmm. um, and they they have long been a concern for conservation from from all fronts. Um, because kind of the big fear is that sage grouse will be li- will be listed as threatened. Uh, on the endangered species list, which will have kind of a, a catastrophic snowball effect on the lives of people in the West, uh, from mm-hmm. uh, people who are in energy extraction to obviously people who are in conservation, recreation, etc. Um, so that's why sage grouse are, are um, first and foremost. For, first and foremost, when people talk about uh, upland birds in Wyoming, um, so this 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 game farm uh the thought the way i understand it is that uh they'll establish a way to uh raise sage grouse in captivity in order to bolster wild bird populations uh much like you would see at a put and take pheasant operation in the dakotas where yeah you've got some wild birds but then um those populations are augmented by releasing pen raised birds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so same kind of idea, which at first glance, it's like, hey, that's not a bad idea, you know? Yeah, uh, just throw a bunch a nice, of birds out there, add, sure. add to the population, right? Yep, yep. Uh, but then when you start to dig into it deeper, um, it maybe isn't such a great idea. Uh, the The most obvious reason being that pen raised birds have a very low survivorship rate. Uh, I've I've heard it's in the single percentage points of birds, yep. uh, regardless of the game bird that we're talking about here, but pheasants mm-hmm. probably being the most common. Uh, right. But like, let's say 5% of uh, pen raised pheasants released into the wild survive in, in the wild long enough to make it to the next breeding season. Um, mm-hmm. That's obviously extremely low. So the scale of production that you'd have to have in order to kick enough sage grouse out, out of the landscape to make a difference would be pretty notable. Um, well, I, I read a number, Josh, and I and I think it's, you know, it's a recent number based on this particular game farm or this bird farm that uh, opened up here, that it is like less than, I think out of a couple hundred birds, only two survived to live a year 
one survived to breed, I think was the, the correct. Number. Yep, yeah. those numbers sound right from from their first rounds um, at that facility. Uh, so, so yeah, the the feasibility of it um, comes into question immediately. Uh, the project does not have the support of a lot of the scientific community. These are people who are literally dedicate their lives to understanding and preserving sage grouse, um, mm-hmm. both because of the the feasibility and because of the big looming question of do we do we really want pen raised sage grouse? Uh, whether whether you live in Wyoming like I do, or you're you would like to travel to Wyoming to hunt or you have, uh, when you walk out and on a sage plane in central Wyoming, do you want, um, those birds that get up and, and scare the pants off you? Do you hmm. want those to be pen raised birds or do you want those to be wild birds that are naturally part of that landscape? And I think virtually every hunter would say, we want them to be wild birds. If we want to shoot pen raised birds, we can stay in Illinois or Missouri or whatever and shoot pen raised pheasants, right? Part right. of the part of the experience of hunting sage grouse is that um, immersion in this Western landscape. Um, and really, in my mind, that's the whole reason to hunt sage grouse is to uh, connect with that with the birds um, in in the landscape that they call home. Um, Mm -hmm. so there's, there's kind of a list of other, um, considerations with that game farm on, on why it would be a good idea to have a little bit better oversight over this whole project to kind of put the brakes on it and maybe ask those important questions of, Hey, even if we can do this, is it a good idea? Um, and for folks that are interested in that, um, there's a lot out there in um, the upland hunting digital world right now about this. Yeah. Uh, Wyoming Wildlife Federation has put together a lot of work on this bill, and that's probably I would refer people to hop on their website and check out details there if they're uh, interested in learning more. And just like any other legislative consideration that affects uh, hunters. What we can do is we can contact legislators. We can call or email uh, the people that are considering this and respectfully uh, express our opinions. Respectfully is a great way of uh, explaining that because that is a very important part of this. We, each one of us, you, me, Brandon, if you want to, anybody listening right now can have a voice in this particular bill, just like so many other bills around the country. Uh, this one is happening right now. It's it's in the forefront. So it's it brings uh, brings up the topic of the importance of our voice out there. This particular bill, from my understanding, Josh, you can probably do a better job of explaining it. But this one was pushed through without the um, approval of everybody in the typical process of creating a bill. Uh, this the sunset period is about to expire, which means that if this bill doesn't Uh, If this bill goes through, then more um, sage grouse private game farms or private farms can then open up. Is that correct? That's my understanding as well. Okay. And it's worth worth noting too, at this point, um, the the people um, working in the game farm are collecting wild sage grouse eggs out of the Mm -hmm. wild in order to try to hatch in the controlled environment, which obviously has potential impacts on actual wild populations. Correct. Yeah. And most people that would not be familiar with this bird would say, Hey, we're trying something. 
people are trying something, right? But I think the reality is that the the bird itself, well, in Wyoming, I would I, I believe the number is 37, 38% of the wild sage grouse population in the world lives in Wyoming. So that's why this is such a big topic for you guys is because you you whole whole not home house nearly half of the world's sage grouse population. Um, and so a lot of people are looking at you. Um, you still do have a hunting season for these birds, uh, which is so critical because there's a lot of um, ramifications for if this bird goes on the endangered species list, we can't hunt them, then uh, oil becomes a big topic, right? Oil is probably the one of the largest players in this because we're we're not talking about a bird that is being hunted over harvested that way we're just talking about a bird that is losing the habitat that they need and they need a huge area to survive what is their home range josh uh from what i understand it could range it can vary quite a bit depending on the population that you're talking about and even individual birds but um let's say for a hen it, it's several miles away from a lek which is the location where um, or they dance in the spring. Um, uh, so roughly a couple miles around that lek, lek location is is where birds will range. But they, they have been recorded as ranging much farther. Where I live, there are populations that move from the lowlands um, dozens of miles up high onto the sides of mountains uh, in the late summer uh, for brood rearing, uh, which is pretty wild. And they've even um, tracked some birds as as going much further than that even i believe roughly 100 miles 97 mm -hmm. miles comes to mind something like that uh, so th they can move a, a, a long distance uh, but they are somewhat tied to a specific location usually um, from my understanding but kind of coming back to to what something you mentioned travis is you mentioned how important it is that there is a hunting season for them. And that's, mm -hmm. that's an interesting thought to explore a little further. Um, so uh, hunting seasons for sage grouse have already closed entirely in multiple states. So mm -hmm. California, you can't hunt them at all anymore. I believe Washington, you can't. Um, the Dakotas, you can't. Uh, the, there's a handful of other states that still allow them. Most of them have... a a uh, specific over-the-counter license to hunt sage grouse uh, with a low quota, uh, harvest quota, um, or bag limit, I should say. Uh, and there are a few states where it's a draw, just like if you want to hunt a, hunt a bull elk or something, you got to put in, mm -hmm. see if you get drawn, um, et cetera. Wyoming and Montana are the only two states that still have sage grouse on a general bird hunting license. Um, Montana se season is longer than ours here in Wyoming by a couple weeks. Um, other than that, they're fairly similar in how they manage the bag limits and possession limits and all that. Uh, so the, the thought here is that allowing people to hunt sage grouse creates advocates for sage grouse conservation. Right. Um, and I, I fully agree with that. Um, how that plays out in practice gets a little messy though. Uh, because we as hunters have the opportunity to conserve these birds and to help towards that. Uh, but how, how we accomplish that 
uh, can, can get a, a little cumbersome. So let's say I live in Missouri and I come out to Wyoming uh, for a bucket list sage grouse hunt. Uh, we get into some birds. We have a grand time. Uh, we harvest a few. Uh, we go home and we think, gosh, that was awesome. I want those birds to remain on that landscape. What can I do to help? Um, and the answer to that question is, well, it's a little tricky. <laughs> there, are, <laughs> yeah. th- there are multiple organizations out there that a person could donate money to, like Audubon or Wyoming Wildlife Federation, et cetera, that are involved in on-the-ground conservation work. Uh, but if you don't actually live here in Wyoming, uh, outside of potentially traveling specifically to do uh, volunteer conservation field work, which I guess I guess would probably be a pretty great thing to do if someone could swing it, uh, yeah. basically donations is what you're looking at. Um, and Obviously, when people donate to a nonprofit, they want to make sure that as much of their money makes a difference on the ground as possible. Um, so there are there are uh, organizations that are that are working on that, uh, but I th- I think that us as hunters, our place is is to go out of our way to figure out how to give back. I mean, when you think about the amount of time that we put into planning a hunt. Um, especially a big bucket list trip like that, right? Yep. I mean, when you get back, what's what's a couple hours of of research to try to figure out how to give give back to the landscape that you just visited? Obviously, this isn't just the case for sage grouse, but for any birds that you pursue pursue while travel hunting, right? Like um, yep. southwestern quail species or uh, prairie chickens or whatever. There's a lot of bird species that need purposeful and meaningful. Uh, um, engagement from hunters. Um, so that's, that's why it's important that we still have hunting for sage grouse. But, um, the flip side of that is if we as hunters truly care about conservation, we need to put our own, um, natural selfish interests to the side. Right. Uh, so at some point, let's say sage grouse numbers continue to decline, Perhaps um, the managing agencies, uh, states, for the most part at this time, um, they it's their job to make sure these birds are doing well. And they need our support as hunters uh, to back them up and to hold them accountable um, for using science-based research in game management of, of species like sage grouse. Potentially, there could come a day where you know, they might have to shorten the sage grouse season in Wyoming or reduce bag limits or use a different um, license configuration uh, in order to help the birds. If if that is based on sound science, then we as hunters need to support that because, hey, you know, everyone loves going out and chasing birds and having that memorable flush and holding that bird in your hand at the end of the day. That's awesome. But it, it pales in comparison to the importance of conserving these wild critters in the landscapes they call home. Um, yeah. and I'll, I'll get off my soapbox for a minute. No, no, stay on it. Actually, you brought up a very good point and that's something that I wanted to eventually get into too, because what you said is very important when it says that as hunters, we need to support people that are trying to work on behalf of the resource, in this case, sage grouse, but 
nation nationwide there's other birds and other places uh and other wild species that re- really need the support of people that understand the the landscape the habitat that they need and where we're at right now i have a very um specific story that explains exactly what you're talking about so I, in Minnesota, went to the Capitol, oh gosh, a few years back now, because there was a bill that was that was going to the, through the, the state um, that was bad. It was a bad bill for our resources, our natural resources. I knew, based on my whole entire life spent in, on the water, understanding ecosystems in lakes and where we're at here, um, this bill was being pushed through because non-anglers uh, wanted to uh, reduce basically uh, the amount of, uh, how do I sum it up? I'm trying to sum this up quickly by saying basically anglers that have public access to all the waters in our state were at risk of losing that because a bill was going to set a precedence that would change how people that owned property around the lake can control a lake and what goes into it and how it's managed. I went in to speak basically against this bill, which was what our state biologists, DNR biologists, Department of Natural Resources biologists were presenting to our elected officials. Okay. So I'm sitting in the, at the Capitol I'm ready to testify. I listened to the head of the DNR fisheries biologist go up and speak. And our elected officials were giving him the cold shoulder because of their own interests in previous things that had happened. And I was, I I had the biggest eye-opening experience that day. I left so mad, so frustrated with our system people that we elected to serve on our behalf, I expected them to listen to us on our behalf. I went up and I spoke uh, and I had a very short amount of time to to say why I agreed with this, the biologists and the biology and the science behind this bill and why I'm opposed to it. Uh, and people did not want to hear it, that we're up there listening, uh, our elected officials. And then there was an outcry because it got to the point where this thing could pass and anglers in Minnesota stood up and they called and they called and they called every single one of their elected officials around the state. And it was overwhelming. And finally they, they, they killed the bill. They killed the bill. But had we not stood up, had people that cared about it, not made their voices heard, that bill would have changed set of precedents for who manages the resource, not millionaires that live on the lake shore that want to control the, the lake that is public, but taking it out of the hands of the people that are in charge of managing it on behalf of everybody, the resource that everybody can have. So that's just my own personal experience. It was dirty. It was unreal to be in there, but I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad I stood up for something that I knew and I just, I knew wasn't right. Um, at the end of the day, that bill did not go through it, but um, I learned a lot there and I learned how important every single one of us are in the big picture. And that applies to wildlife, fish, uh, conservation, habitat, everything that we care about. If you listen to this podcast, 
You care about the birds, you care about the land, and you have to care about the habitat because without the habitat, we don't have the birds. Uh, Josh, I read an article on uh, Project Upland's website the other day, um, and there was one line that jumped out to me that I just, like when I read it, I was like, yeah, 100%. It said, sage grouse do not have a population problem in Wyoming. They have a habitat problem that cannot be solved with artificial supplementation. So to me that that stands out um you know this is this is just this bill um big picture we're talking habitat here what can we do what can each one of us do to make a difference yeah you know um anna uh my friend who wrote that piece for project upland she absolutely nailed it um there i agree with you uh so conservation is is a really popular buzzword in the outdoor world right everyone talks Mm -hmm. about conservation we're all for conservation Um, but you're right just like when you went to your state legislature to to fight that bad bill actually doing something about it gets a lot harder (laughs) it does Um, yeah and it okay so i think of this as as like uh, three, pro- you can have a three pronged approach, right. To, uh, getting involved in conservation. One, you can do it monetarily. You can donate to organizations that you think are doing good stuff on the ground Two, You can, you can do good stuff on the ground. This might look like volunteering with, um, your local game and fish or whatever it happens to be called in your individual state. Um, there's other biologists out there doing field work to help um, both wild bird populations and other wildlife. Um, and then the, th- the third prong is get involved with legislative actions uh, like you've touched on already. I don't know. I think that if every, uh, so um, this might ruffle a few feathers, but hey, it's a bird hunting podcast, right? Yeah. Um, so the R3 movement really encourages recruitment of new hunters and reactivation, et cetera. I don't disagree with that, but in my mind, if every hunter that is already an active active hunter hits on all three all three of those those things that I mentioned, uh, volunteering, uh, monetary donations, and getting involved with with legislative actions, we wouldn't need more hunters to fund um, conservation work. Uh, yeah, we we would the the difference that each of us would make would go so much further. Um, and then it really, if, if you compound that with, um, um, encouraging other people to experience the hunting world, especially people that aren't, um, maybe, uh, society's idea of a traditional hunter, uh, then combined with that, man, can you imagine the difference that that we would make toward conservation. If you're an avid outdoorsman or woman on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say Aluma trailers tow gear like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum. 
and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumakln.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. For everything that gets you outdoors, Aluma Trailers will help you get there. There are many places that you can buy products to process and prepare your meat. There are not a lot of places that you can buy those products and learn how to use them from experts. Walton's is that place. They have everything, and I mean everything, for your cooking and wild game processing needs. Plus, they have the experts on staff to help you learn how to use their products to get the best results. John Tremblay hosts their Meatgistics podcast, live streams, and live chats, which are interactive learning tools for the meat processing community. From sausage making to smoking, recipes to seasoning, and so much more, they've got you covered. Walton's products ship the same day you order, and while they have nearly every brand you'd ever want to purchase, they also have their own line of Walton's grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, vacuum sealers, and so much more. Walton's, they have everything but the meat. Um, what's your take on the uh, the landscape out there, what you're seeing now? Is it is it changing drastically in the, in the areas of concern for sage grouse um so uh are you talking more ecologically yeah i mean we're we're not talking about uh, an issue with the birds and not having enough and we're talking about a habitat issue right i mean that's 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 the bottom line across america so so that 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 habitat issue uh right now uh yes energy development like you mentioned already is a big consideration um Urban expansion in in um, both small and larger communities around the West is a consideration. Um, wildfires are a huge consideration, um, and that's because while fire was historically very important in replenishing the sagebrush ecosystem and creating a, a, a patchwork environment that sage grouse like. Now fires burn bigger and hotter because we've tried to put them out for 200 years. Um, And because of that, uh, when they burn, they're more likely to just wipe out entire areas of prime sage grouse habitat. And after they burn, it's likely that invasive species like cheatgrass will come back in and create a monoculture of, of an invasive species that's not at all habitat for sage grouse. And basically you're looking at permanent habitat loss under that scenario. So uh, there are some of the organizations I mentioned already, they do work toward um, trying to prevent the establishment of invasive grass species after fire. That's probably one of the biggest things that I've I've learned in my research on on the sage grouse issue of things we can do on the ground now to help sage grouse. When a fire burns through, uh, treat that area with uh, herbicide that's specifically targeted towards those invasive grasses, and that allows the the native plant species to come back in. That seems so challenging because my experience hunting sage grouse is that you're in a sea of sage that goes as far as the eye can see. <laughs> I mean, it's Absolutely. humongous. It's it's yeah. it's it's breathtaking to be in it because just how 
unbelievably expansive it is. And how do you treat that? Do you fly it, over it and spray it, or do you? Yeah, it's not like, yeah, they they do aerial okay. applications largely. But you're right; it's en- enormously daunting and quite expensive <laughs> to do that sort of thing. So people that are using that successfully are are using it in a very targeted manner, right? Right yeah. now, um, but yeah, I don't know. It it is it is just a very daunting problem. Um, gotcha. And and I hope that uh, ten years from now, twenty years from now. I'll be taking my kids out on sage grouse hunts, but that is not a given. Um, here in Wyoming, we've seen sage grouse numbers decline six years in a row now. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, um, obviously it, we're not the only ones talking about this right now to people that say, well, okay. So if maybe there is some hope for this privatized, sage grouse farming to put more birds out there at least they're trying something um is it is it just a waste of time and money uh like gosh you know, <laughs> I know it, 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 you it makes you it here. makes you wonder if everything in in regard is a waste of time and money and the birds are just doomed to extinction and we might as well throw up our hands right it's when you look at these big problems like this it's easy to uh despair um i I've got a buddy who's um, a sage grouse biologist, um, and I asked him that question uh, one time when we were actually out trapping sage grouse to collar them uh, to, to do research on their movements. And he said, well, if that happens, worst case scenario, they're listed. We can't hunt them anymore. Perhaps they even go extinct. At least I'll know I did something. That's what he said. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I I actually, there's, there's another guy I talked to one time and he said in our lifetime, sage grouse are not going to go on that list because the oil industries have too much to lose if they do. You, you sure hope so. You'd sure hope that all of the interests, um, in, in keeping the, their populations viable will make it happen. I hope, I hope you're right. So last, last topic on sage grouse here. If somebody wants to contact uh, a legis- Wyoming legislature about this and voice their opinion, where should they go? Um, you can just Google uh, Wyoming legislators and it'll take you to a website that has uh, email addresses for all the representatives. Obviously, if you live in Wyoming, it's especially important that you speak up because legislators tend to listen to those voices more um, mm-hmm. and and contact your appropriate uh, senator or representative. Right. Yeah. And and back to that story that I experienced when I was down there, that's what I did. I went to my local legislator and worked with him. And then he helped me kind of see the bigger picture. And I was able to try to sort of understand the political mess that happens down at the Capitol. It's it's dirty, Josh. I got to be honest. It was dirty. I left feeling just so disgusted. I'm like, this is about fish and water um, which matter a lot to me, but there are huge, massive issues that they're working through down there. And to see how things were pushed through, un- swept underneath. And I was like, no, no, this is what you, this is what you dread. Is, nobody wants to see this. And I saw it firsthand. People were saying, okay, don't sit by me because if he sees you by me, he's not going to listen to you because he doesn't care. He, he, he hates me because I oppose his bill and blah, blah, blah. Uh, things were being pushed through without going to vote. I was just sitting there thinking, this is awful. But 
I left with an appreciation for what I can do. It's just something. And I told all my close friends and hunters and anglers just about the experience and how important my particular voice was that day and how important each one of theirs is if they choose to use it at, at the local level. And then as it grows and grows and grows, because you have an effect on the people that you elect, uh, you hope, you try, that's what we can do. Um, and if it doesn't work, then you hope that you can get somebody elected that is working on your behalf versus, because if somebody's in, I, I look at it this way, Josh, if, if I get elected someday to go serve the state of Minnesota, I am not an expert in every single thing that we need to make bills on and work on. I want to be listening to everybody that knows about this topic versus saying, I'm going to push something through because I just want to and I think I know it all. No, that's not right. You got to listen to the people that know what's happening out there and then make movements, make bills to try to do the best you can based on that information instead of ignoring it. Okay. I'm getting off my soapbox now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) As you can tell, I I care about this stuff just like you do, Josh. I really, I really do. Um, And okay. So another topic that we can talk about is kind of the, well, are, are you open to talking about this, Josh? The growth of upland bird hunting across America? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you know, I listened to your conversation or part of your conversation anyway, with Nate Aki from last week. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how just in a, what, what a year and a half where he's been in Oregon, he's mm-hmm. noticing a change in pressure. And I think he was mentioning chucker hunting spots in particular, yeah. um, upland bird hunting is growing. And that is true in Wyoming, just like it is everywhere else. Um, if you're listening and you're thinking about a you know, maybe doing, doing that bucket list, uh, sage grouse hunt in Wyoming, uh, someday. Um, sometimes there's a perception that out here in these less populated Western states, that it's, um, an untouched wilderness full of <laughs> yeah. wild birds that no one ever hunts. And, um, I'm sorry to say that's not accurate. <laughs> um, now it's, it's not like, uh, having to fight over, you know, some of the small walk-in areas in the Midwest or something. We are, we are definitely spoiled with the amount of public land access we have, which mm-hmm. belongs to all Americans. Everyone has just as much right to hunt those, um, as, as I do living in Wyoming. And that's great. But, uh, <laughs> um, sorry, I lost my thought. <laughs> that's okay. I, I'll say that I'm, I'm guilty of, saying exactly what you just said because yeah. I literally last week I'm like I've been out there and I don't see anybody you right, know and right. and so there's there I am just like I'm spending such yeah. a small fraction of the season and I'm seeing such a small fraction of what's out yeah. there and, 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 and I'm speaking for, from from my perspective cuz sure. like I've got some WMAs here near my place in Minnesota and it would I, I mean like the the amount of pressure that we see on some of our small public properties here, I feel like you you would ha- in some of these areas out west, you're talking hundreds of thousands of acres. Absolutely, and, absolutely. You know, and I I I question sometimes: Are you seeing this? Uh, like, if I have 500 people walk through that 40 acre, if we have 500 hunters walk through that 40 acre section. 
in a season. And if you have 500 walk through that 250,000 acre section, like, is that comparable? Yes. I don't know. It's, it's absolutely, it's, it's not, it's, it's different. Um, and I, I totally get that we're spoiled out here and I fully acknowledge that. Um, uh, but you know, bird populations aren't here out here are not like they are in the Midwest where, you know, carrying capacity is largely determined by management of landscapes that have been, um, that have been mostly used for agriculture, agriculture production for a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. so out here, landscapes are, are less modified and much drier. Um, that's a big factor in limiting carrying capacity. So you tend to have these, regardless of what bird species you're talking about, which we should probably touch on that briefly too, of what's out here. Um, regardless of the species, you'll find these little patches of ideal habitat that have good bird numbers and a whole lot of less ideal habitat in between that's gotten no birds. Um, and that's especially the case in drier years, like we've had the last couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. so that tends to, uh, concentrate hunters on smaller areas. Yeah. You might be able to hunt, you know, 10 square miles, but the birds might be on a quarter mile of that, you know? Um, yeah. and, and so people that are both able to recognize good habitat or already know it's a good spot tend to uh, concentrate on those areas. So to, to give you more objective observations about this, when I started hunting chucker roughly five or six years ago, um, I would rarely see another chucker hunter in the field like maybe one per, per outing. Um, this last season I saw another chucker hunter every, every time I went out except for one day. Um, Hmm. and on several of those days I'd, I'd see multiple parties, like several vehicles parked in the same general area. And it's like, yeah, you know, maybe that's not a big deal. You got three pickups parked, um, in an area that's maybe a square mile or a couple square miles. Well, when you consider there might only be, I don't know, four or five coveys of chucker on in that area, that's actually kind of crowded. Um, so you can absolutely still find areas where you can, you can have solitude where you can walk all day, find birds and have plenty of elbow room, but it is getting to where you do have to work a little bit harder to do that. If you, if you just go to the places that are well known as having good, uh, bird populations, and especially if they have easy access, you can, you can pretty well figure on having some company now. Um, Hmm. and some species that being more the case with others, I would say chucker. I've noticed that, that increase, um, blue grouse for sure. Um, and in maybe, maybe, uh, park, uh, hunts, Hungarian partridge as well. I've noticed more people are going out of their way to pursue those. So, well, and I think when we we start talking about traveling bird hunters too, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, when when people go, let's say you're you're you hunt. I don't know how many days a year. I know it's quite a bit. Um, you know, but your um, idea of a successful day might be completely different to somebody who traveled, you know, fifteen hundred miles to go and experience this hunt, and um, what are you still there, Josh? I am. Okay. Gotcha. I heard a little something. I didn't know if I lost you. What, what somebody who travels that far might think is a great day could be, uh, a limit, you know, like it has to be a limit. So they're taking more, they might be not really considering, um, what 
effect they might have on a sure. particular cove- covey of birds. And especially if they're not- traveling with a bunch of buddies, right? Right. Because right. Then so if, if a covey of. Sorry. Yeah. No, I was going to say if a covey of eight to 10 birds get up and you're able to follow it and get multiple flushes on a particular covey, the, the, really the, the, um, the effect that a single group of hunters can have on, on birds surviving, um, is, is crucial. It's big. I mean, it's something that as hunters, everybody should, should really consider what, their take or what their shot is doing on that that bird and that covey uh you know because it's not like pheasants around the midwest it's different out there in the mountains it absolutely is and i fully agree with you um in in theory one party of people um bumping one covey of let's say hungarian partridge or chucker could uh could wipe out that covey in one hunt potentially if it's um let's say it's a drier year and there's like you say 10 10 to 12 birds people shoot six birds out of them you got to figure some birds aren't going to make it through the winter there's predation and you know exposure to the elements and all that and you got to figure you're probably not the only party that's going to encounter those birds over the season Mm -hmm. then yeah yeah you're right um i i really agree with you there. And most experienced bird hunters I know out here in the West are very cognizant of that. Uh, for covey birds, um, huns and, and, um, and chucker, they, they only hunt, um, one, one covey or sorry, they only hunt a covey once a year, um, or once per season. So, um, if they, if they flush those birds and they kill some birds out of that covey, they will avoid encountering the same covey again to reduce their impact. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I've been talking about the Onyx Hunt app since we started producing this show, and that's simply because I use it on every single hunt. Their app tells me everything that I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that I can legally hunt on. The Onyx Hunt app shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It also tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land, federal lands, walk-in access properties, etc. The app also has new features this year that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. If you hunt grouse in the north woods, there's a timber cut layer to help you find ideal habitat. If you're planning to hunt North Dakota this year, then there's a very important layer that has been added to the app that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the tools Onyx Maps give us. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. For generations, bird hunters have hit the fields carrying some form of a vest or game pouch on their backs. Sometimes the vests rip, tear, and fall apart. Other times, they are downright uncomfortable. That's why Chief Upland designed a vest that's durable, comfortable, and fits your needs. Their new Upland vest is fully customizable to fit the size and shape of all hunters. Plus, you decide where you want to attach your shell pouches and accessories. Birds can be front-loaded into the game pouch, and they fit nicely in the back without sagging. That's a big deal because the weight disbursement on your back and shoulders won't tire you out, even with a full pouch of birds. The vest itself is extremely lightweight, weighing only 2.56 pounds. The material is built out of Cordura fabric, which is the same waterproof fabric used in tactical military gear. 
you can confidently hunt with a Chief Upland vest in some of the world's toughest environments. Order your Chief Upland vest now to make sure that you're ready for your next hunt. Push further and hunt longer with a game-changing vest from Chief Upland, built for your pursuit. So not not to say that as hunters, we shouldn't go out and try to have a great hunt and and you know come back with birds. That's, that's not even close to what I would ever try to tell anybody. I think it's important for us. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have hunted for a while, or maybe you're learning, uh, you know, learning to hunt now. But we all have a role out there, and as we're walking, if we see it, and this this applies to quail in quail country too. It's the same thing. Covey birds, um, they need each other to survive, so you can't take too many out of a covey without having a realistic impact on them. Um, and so, you know. Maybe it's just saying, all right, hey, I'm going to talk with my hunting party and here's what we should try to do to help conserve these birds. And, you know, we can take a couple, but then we don't want to keep pushing them, keep pushing them and wipe a covey out entirely. So uh, your role, our role, each one of us does have a pretty important role in that particular hunt. Absolutely. And I think part of that is being cognizant of not only what we do in the field, uh, but also what we do out of the field. you know, with the growth of social media, um, there's lots of people sharing stuff online and I, I'm right in there. I like, you know, posting successful hunts on Instagram or whatever. But, um, I know for me, I, I never want to be a gatekeeper, right? I don't want to try to prohibit anyone from experiencing these wonderful birds in these wonderful places. But because I care about those wonderful birds in those wonderful places, I'm also not going to just gossip about them or, or tell anyone, um, Hey, go hunt this spot. You know, it's a good spot. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be, um, really discerning about who, who I, who I tell, um, about, uh, a specific bird spot. And in fact, kind of my rule of thumb is I, I don't tell anybody any bird spots, uh, for the most part, if someone wants, wants to experience a bird spot, I will go hunt it with them uh, because I know that when I hunt that spot with that person, then they are vested in um, choosing actions that conserve that resource, just like me. Uh, whereas uh, if I just tell whoever, then, you know, next thing you know, it's Friday night at the bar and everybody in town knows about that spot. <laughs> it, it can spread really quickly, obviously. Um, I think there's, there's so much more to a hunt for me personally to uh, going out and figuring it out and struggling and failing and then finding success that I guess I just, I mean, yeah, I, I film TV shows and we go hunt with people around the country and they've grown up or they, you know, we might go to an area with them. So there's times where I'm going along with people that have been to a certain area, but I'll tell you, when I go hunting, I rarely go to the same place twice. I rarely do. I enjoy the challenge of trying to learn it and figure it out. And I don't ever ask, I never ask anybody, hey, where should I go? Or where's the spot? Because I I, I think if I do ultimately end up with that bird in hand, that's the, the, the reward is like just putting it all together and, and finding it for myself and then I have found something that I can be proud of and achieve something more so than just pulling the trigger on a bird that somebody took me to. I'm 100% there with you on that. 
Travis. Um, yeah, the, that's part of the adventure, right? Um, mm-hmm. if, it, if it were easy, it wouldn't be any fun. Uh, and uh, maybe that would be a good, a good time to interject a story. So yeah. uh, last, last season, late last season, uh, my dog, Bailey, and I went out. Uh, Wait, looking- hold on. You got to tell everybody what kind of dog you have first. Okay. So Bailey is a Husky German Shepherd cross. She's 13 years old. She's now deaf. Um, and she can still hunt the Chucker Hills. She's been Amazing. hunting since she was about two. Yep. And she's, she's a flusher, as you might imagine. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask that. She, she, she hunts, she, she hunts as well as any other flushing breed I've, I've ever hunted over. Um, she's got, she's got a, a pretty, a pretty hot nose. And so she's, um, she's a, quite a good tracker. Um, and, and she air scents quite well too. Um, we, we had one chucker hunt last season where she air scented a covey from probably 200 yards. So she's so really, are you running really up the mountain? With. Are you running up the mountain chasing her? Because the, the deal with <laughs> chucker is they live in it's hell. It's, it's, oh yes. You know, it's oh, yes. not, it's yeah. not flat. There's nothing about it. That's easy to, to reach. And so if you have a dog that doesn't stop, then, you know, the whole point is they need Absolutely. to be getting up within range. So yeah. how do you stay? <laughs> which, which, of course, that's true of uh, of pointing and flushing breeds. If they don't stop for you, you're not going to get the birds and they're not going to yes! either, right? Yes. So <laughs> it's nothing yeah. doesn't do you any good yeah. if your dog so, flushes them 200 I, yards away. I, would, I, I, know, I know little to nothing about training bird dogs. Um, Bailey and my strategy over the years has basically been let's go hunt. <laughs> um, but the number one thing I've had to work on with her over the years, and it's just a continual uh, process, is recall, right? Keeping her within gun range um, because she does have that hot nose. Uh, we were sage grouse hunting uh, in September a couple years ago, and um, we went after a couple birds to try to get a reflush on them. And um, we're heading heading down into this little sagebrush bowl where I, where I thought they had gone, and um, Bailey puts her nose up in the air and she just starts bounding, and I was like, "Oh man, here we go!" And guess what came out of there? A covey of about thirty chucker. <laughs> really? Yeah. And um, in that case, I hadn't been paying close attention to her. Um, I, I wasn't in, uh, I wasn't in range of good verbal command and she was a little bit out of gun range and I didn't get a shot on the birds, but Hey, that's, that's Chucker half the time anyway. So, um, yes, uh, she, Bailey is especially good on forest grouse because she's a really methodical searcher. Um, so for blue grouse and rough grouse, um, she's really fun to hunt behind, but I think, um, I think she's got, she's a little bloodthirsty for partridge, and I think that's most fun for her. I think anybody that's hunted for him gets a little bloodthirsty after a while. It's it gets personal. Absolutely. It's probably just as personal for her as it is for you. <laughs> it it absolutely is. Yeah, oh. yeah. The the old joke, right? Uh, what, uh, you you hunt Chucker once for fun, and after that for revenge. Yeah, the, the devil. They're the only. They're the only yeah, the only game animal I cuss at. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mother Chucker. A lot of you people got it. I've, I've heard Absolutely. them yell at the birds yeah. once you get up there. Yeah, but they're, yeah. the experience in itself is just something that, and I've talked about a lot of this uh, since we started this podcast, just the experience itself, just to try it one time, just to say you did it. Um, watch a dog 
work up in the mountains is just something something that I mean I get why it's so popular. I've not understood why it wasn't so popular prior to the last few years when things have really started to pick up because I mean it's just breathtaking up there. It's yeah. It's so you know, cool to watch these birds that get up in these coveys and then they disappear over a mountain and you're like, oh, oh we're 12 miles in and we just blew it. <laughs> you were you were talking about how there's there's different ways pe- people measure success on a bird hunt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, for me anymore, I, I've definitely stopped thinking about shooting a limit of chucker. Uh, I figure that if I, uh, if I get a few flushes that are within range and I take and I harvest a few birds and I and we make it home alive then it's a win (laughs) because chucker hunting is is seriously it's it's more dangerous than any other birds I've ever hunted I mean you got muddy and icy two tracks where you could just slide off into an arroyo you've got um cliffs that your dog or you could slip off of I've, I've had a buddy uh, on one hunt, he stepped on some bentonite mud, which if you're from Wyoming, you probably know what that is, um, and almost went over a cliff edge on one hunt. It was Dang. pretty crazy. Have you ever seen a dog go off? Because I have. Every time I've ever gone trucker <laughs> hunting, that topic has come up. Um, I have seen a dog go over a cliff. You have. Um, it was. It was a pup. And they were following ground scent the wrong direction. We could see the tracks in the snow. And that dog bailed off of the cliff uh, following the ground scent. Fortunately, wow. this cliff was, was, uh, had a little bit of angle to it and was only maybe 10 feet high. <laughs> Otherwise, that day would not have ended quite as well as it did. The dog survived? Oh, yes. No problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder about mine being in the Chucker Hills because she's got she's like a streak of lightning and I don't know yeah. what she would do if, you know, at it I, I assume uh that she would adapt and play it safe, but um I might need to let her mature a little bit more yet before I bring her out on yeah. a chucker hunt. But before we move on from Chucker too, one thing I would like to note too is regarding them being the most deadly upland birds to pursue, in my opinion. Chucker live in a um, country that's also really good for trapping. So if anyone's traveling to Chucker country to hunt, they should absolutely know how to re- release their dog from leg hole traps um, and re- uh, release their dog from snare traps which can be deadly yeah mm-hmm. i personally haven't run into con bears out here but i guess depending oh, on I suppose, where, yeah. where you are that's, you could potentially yeah fence yeah. lines that's more common we, but we actually my, my buddy dan and i who i hunt with quite a bit we actually encountered um some unmarked m44 cyanide bombs last what? trucker season yes and what did you do basically his dog um survive barely survived right because his dog exploded oh it did not fortunately but his his dog was in front of us where you want your dog um and i was and fortunately um this is lefty um he's a um a wire hair um he's a a german wire hair excuse me uh and he was maybe 10 yards in front of us at that point i saw him on the ground and knew what they were and Freaked out. <laughs> Dan figured it was important that I was freaking out. So he freaks out and Lefty listened to us and came back. Otherwise, he, he easily could have just tried to raid over there and bit one. 
and been so dead. So what did you There's, do then? Um, in that case, um, I, I knew a little bit about M44s. They're legal to use in Wyoming on private land um, and some public land in some circumstances. Um, but the fact that they weren't marked at the location, I knew that was not legal. And so I contacted the land manager about that and they looked into it. Hopefully they rectified the issue. So some bird hunter doesn't, yeah, doesn't not get lucky. Right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, when you go on a true adventure like that, I mean, a lot of, a lot of Americans go on a pheasant hunter quail hunt and typically you're going on a pretty, pretty calm walk. You know, you might, you might get a little hilly and stuff, but when you start getting way out there, into the mountains and uh, places that you could really hurt yourself. And if you do, you have to be prepared to get yourself out. You know, I'm sure you probably have an escape plan every time. You probably have a lot of tools that you take with in case something bad would happen. Do you have a button you could press that if you don't have signal, somebody knows where you're at and can find your location? All that stuff does exist. And it's stuff that should be considered before you go on that kind of an adventure. Absolutely. So the rest of that day, after we narrowly averted the cyanide bombs, we hiked into this area. We had never hunted. It was just an area I had found on Google Earth that I thought looked promising. Uh, and uh, we we hiked we hiked in there and we found a few bird tracks and got up in this little side canyon. And um, we I started to see some chucker tracks in some sand dunes, which. Um, which told me that they were very fresh, right? And so we're mm -hmm. we're we're all uh, on edge because we think birds are close and the dogs are getting birdie. Uh, and then uh, probably fifteen birds, wild flesh in front of us, maybe let's say fifty yards up. And so I say, Dan, Dan, birds! And so we we hustle to try to get up to them. Which I I, I know you know this because you've hunted chucker, but. Um, you got to be willing to hustle if you want to harvest chucker. You might get a few to hold tight and play nice, but you got to be w willing to put into put in some effort for the most yeah, part, right? Uh, yep. And so we're we're trotting up there to to get uh, a little closer to this covey, um, and then and then they flush again, um, and it's it's a bigger group. It's like let's say thirty birds, pretty big uh, covey of chucker. They all flush out of range except for one bird, and Dan and I both take shots on it um, and drop it. The dogs run over there, and when we shoot, the rest of the covey goes up, and it's another 30 birds, so like 60 wow. birds in a covey, and the entire sky above us is just filled with chucker flushing over our heads as we stand there with empty, empty guns in our mouths <laughs> open. <laughs> uh, oh. and, so, and so that... You know, I mean, that's hunting in the wild west, right? You, you you have some dangers that you absolutely need to be cognizant of, but then you have those those moments that are just such a reward. And of course, there were so many birds in that area that we Dan and I both easily shot our limit uh, within an hour after that initial flush. But um, wow, you know, sometimes I wonder if when I'm an old man, how many of these hunts I'll really remember. But I'm pretty sure I'll remember that one. Well, yeah, I mean, and had you not even taken a limit after that, I bet you just that one flush sequence would stick with you. I, I remember moments like that from adventures I've been on, and I whiffed. I whiffed multiple times. It came back with nothing. I was like, that was incredible. I mean, Absolutely. I know chucker hunting, I've, I've ch chucker hunted in a few different states now, but the ptarmigan hunt I went on 
this past hunting season took that to another level because you're in very similar terrain, but uh, the extremes go a lot more. I mean, we had lightning come in and you can't mess around lightning when you're at 14,000 feet. And then at 14,000 feet, you can't breathe. (laughs) You just cannot breathe like you can at seven, eight, 9,000, yeah. 10,000 feet, you know, some of these other elements. You just want to lay down and take a nap, right? Yeah. Everything was, you know, you had to you're like, all right, we're going to get to here. Then we'll stop. We'll get to here. Then we'll stop. Like here, a little mini goals. You hit many, many milestones, you know, and then you you celebrate those and then you keep moving on. But, um, yeah, I, I, I enjoy the adventure. Um, I, and we, we started this conversation today talking about the conservation side of it. Are there any conservation concerns in your mind when it comes to Chucker? Um, <laughs> frankly, no, not really. Um, oh, good. Well, there's be, a pot. We have positivity then. Yes. Because, we should because, end right now. <laughs> okay. You, you know, yeah, right. You know, what's bad for sage grouse is, uh, a lot of really extreme drought and a lot of cheatgrass expansion. You know yeah. what Chuck are like? Cheatgrass. <laughs> cheatgrass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I do yeah. know that. And, yeah. and although they do need, you know, some moisture too. Uh, but, and frankly, I'm less concerned about them personally. This is just my personal view. Um, I'm less concerned about them from a conservation standpoint because they are an exotic species. Um, you know, that mm-hmm. we, we uh, Europeans brought them in and released them into the wild for our hunting entertainment, basically. And yeah, yeah. They, they, they have a place in that, in that space, um, just despite the way they got there. Um, but I, I'm less concerned about that compared to conserving the native grouse species. Uh, Plus they're just jerks. They're just they jerks. They've, <laughs> got, they've got to come and maybe. Um, uh, so, so. Yeah. So, um, native grouse, um, so this is kind of interesting in Wyoming. Everyone knows Wyoming is a place to go, or at least one of the main places to go to hunt, um, sage grouse, but we actually, at least historically had six native grouse species. Um, so we had white-tailed ptarmigan in the mountains of Southeast Wyoming historically, but they were extirpated a long time ago. Um, there's also spruce grouse and far, uh, Western Yellowstone Park, which can't hunt there anyway. So there's there's the four other species that remain that you can hunt. You can hunt sharptails, which are kind of in the eastern third of the state. You can mm-hmm. um, you can hunt blue grouse or um, dusky grouse, if you like. Uh, yeah. What which, do you What do you tech? I mean, they're they're duskies, right? They're not blues anymore. Well, blue grouse means dusky or sooty grouse which were split into different species i want to say what is that mm-hmm. like 20 years ago now something like I that. i do get them confused because i'm not around them enough that well, i forget which one it's sooty is more is that more northwest of you then correct yeah so yeah. sooties are like in, in the northwest coast states in the mountains over there whereas the rocky mountain states have duskies but uh, and they do look a little bit different, but then within those, there's actually multiple subspecies here in Wyoming, Southern Wyoming has, uh, your, your typical dusky grouse that have a, uh, a gray band on the tip of the tails, um, the tail feathers, whereas Northern Wyoming has Richardson's, uh, subspecies of, of dusk, of dusky grouse, of blue grouse. Um, so there's, there's actually quite a bit of variability there, um, genetically. Uh, so did you get into blues when you were hunting in Colorado? We did. Yeah. Awesome. We, we did drop down 
Because the ptarmigan don't live in in the trees. They're up in right. that um, the tundra. And we did come down into the trees and hunted for uh, the duskies as well. But <laughs> I, I'm not going to go into too much detail on that because yeah. I just yeah. got to save it for, spoil the, it. for the show. Yeah. yeah, but let's just say we, we ran into plenty of obstacles there <laughs> as well. And okay. did some so- surgery on our dogs in the woods. So my, my, my opinion is blue grouse of, of either variety are the most underrated game bird in North America. Ta- and, table fair wise. Oh, absolutely. In that yeah, regard. Yeah, but I, exactly. I think in other, in other regards too. Um, and what would that be? Okay. So here's what I like about blue grouse. Like you said, they're delicious. They're pretty mm-hmm. big. They're like yeah, the it, second. If you like the, rough grouse, which a lot of people in the Midwest, uh-huh. Northeast, they're familiar with rough grouse and or yeah. East Coast too. But it, rough grouse is one of the best tasting birds. I like it better than chicken, and yeah. my family does too. And so you got a lot more meat. It's like a better yes. than a rough grouse, bigger. Yeah, keep going. The, the the only grouse in North America that's bigger than them is the sage grouse. They're pretty good sized, mm-hmm. um, good eating, lighter colored meat. Um, what I like about hunting them, though, is obviously they live in a, an amazing place on on top of a mountain, right? That's pretty cool to hunt up there. Uh, yep. But they they're basically whatever you make of them. So uh, some people think that blue grouse are idiots and that they're just way <laughs> too easy to kill. But yeah. those people are generally riding around on a four wheeler on a forest service road and shooting blue grouse with the 22 on the ground right yeah and it's like yep. well there's probably a lot of you know upland or species elk healthy. hunters a lot of elk <laughs> right. hunters or yeah, mule deer hunters. yeah incidental right yeah 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 like when you encounter them so you you can make it easy if you want like let's say you're taking your kid out for their first hunt you want a bird that's that's maybe hopefully just going to sit them sit there for them and let them take yeah. a shot at it uh maybe you're hunting with uh, an older family member that that needs somewhere where you can just park off of a forest service road and go for a nice stroll along a meadow edge or something. They're that, right? You can make them easy. Or um, if you commit to only shooting at them on the wing, they get a lot harder fast, especially if you're hunting them with a dog. Um, You can make a strong argument that it's actually better to not use a dog hunting blue grouse because they do not like dogs on the ground they will tolerate yeah. humans surprisingly well sometimes in in some cases you can practically walk right up to them before they'll flush um but with a dog on the ground they, whatever you know that that clicks a clicks a switch in their in their um predator avoidance brain i guess and they're out of there they're gonna flush either up into a tree or off of a ridge top um, as soon as they see that dog pretty much. Um, uh, so there again, nice to have a dog that will work very close if you're going to hunt blues with the dog. Mm-hmm. And then when they do flush, um, they're not the easiest bird in the world to hit. Not for me in any way. Um, uh, they are a lot like, um, shooting at, uh, a rough grouse, you know, they'll, they'll be kind of zipping through the timber where you'll get those brief little, pictures of the bird in between the trees and you, and you got to time your shot to take the bird down. Um, and they're kind of a little bit like chucker too, in that they like to be up on higher landforms and then you use the landform to sail off down to safety. Um, and I don't know, I, I think that if, if a bird hunter commits to shooting it 
shooting at blue grouse on the wing. I think they're one of the most fun birds to pursue out of, out of the seven upland species you can hunt in Wyoming. They would probably be the one I would miss the most if I moved somewhere else. Um, I can, that didn't I have can them. get that. So, yeah. And the yeah. other couple of interesting nuggets on that bird that make it a challenge is they actually migrate. People don't realize this, but they migrate up the mountain during the winter months instead of coming down with all the other critters and other birds that migrate down with the snow. So you have to figure out what elevation they are. Sometimes it changes. Absolutely in a week you might find a lot of the birds at you know 8000 feet and then all of a sudden they're at 10 or 11 and that's a big difference if you're off by a thousand feet in elevation um you know uh, you're not going to get into any birds i mean my experience is obviously extremely limited i want i want a lot more if i could but um yeah. it's a fun bird no doubt about it everything is different when you're hunting for it if you're a big game hunter and you happen to see them i mean i've seen some of the dumbest uh, rough grouse in North America when I've been deer hunting in Northern Minnesota. <laughs> and I, I mean, you could take them down with a rock and I've seen them in Canada too. They're, they don't associate me with danger. Uh, they just kind of let me walk by and I go about my business and I guess, you know, the blues or the duskies are very similar in that. Yeah. Too. Um, let's, yes. let's wrap it up on yep. more high notes here, Josh. Um, sure. if, if you were going to plan just like your dream, bird hunting venture maybe it's fishing i know you you trout fish a lot too what would that be in wyoming like if somebody wanted to experience something just you know their once in a lifetime trip would you mind sharing uh, something that you have experienced that would be pretty fun you don't have to give a location but yeah personally i really i really like combination adventures right where you're not going just with one specific goal, but you're mixing it up. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are places in Wyoming that I won't hotspot, <laughs> um, that you could go and you could catch uh, native cutthroat trout out of a nice little stream. Um, you could put your rod back in your truck, grab your shotgun and, and your dog and go for a walk for rough grouse or blue grouse or sage grouse. Um, and then on the same day, you could go visit um, uh, a Native American rock art site. Um, you could even summit a peak. You could do all of those things in one day in a lot of places in Wyoming. And for me, that's that's kind of the allure, right? Um, I know, so obviously anyone listening to this podcast will love bird hunting probably, and I do too. Uh, I really enjoy it. It's been a, a life, a lifelong, um, love for me, but I do think it's kind of easy to, um, to pigeonhole ourselves into, uh, trying to recreate or only seek out one type of experience. And I think that for me personally, the adventures that I've had that are the most fulfilling are the ones where I did kind of break out of that box a little bit and try to experience something different, try a few different things. Um, not just kind of put all my eggs in one basket, um, every time I want to go out and have fun. So, yeah, no, I, I like it. I like your style. Um, it's been a real pleasure. I, I know we covered a lot of issues. We, we got a little passionate. We got on our soapbox there, both of us, but it matters. And I, I think we could end on this and just say what your buddy said, that's been putting in the work. If, if it's not there at some point in the future, at least we know we did something we, we tried, you know, and I think all of us can have a part, whether Absolutely. it's on a, lo a, a local level is great. Start at a local level, 
do something that um, you know is going to make a difference. If it's one seed you're putting in the soil, you put one seed more than you you could. You know, like if you didn't do anything, at least you did that. And if it's helping other people collectively, when we all do little things, it makes a big thing. So I hope I hope we take that away. Um, I I hope that your kids and my kids and their kids all get to go sage grouse hunting when they get older because Me too. it's something that it's special. I got to do it one time and I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that opportunity. And I hope others get to experience it as well. Josh, uh, again, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, your so time much, and, and all the work that you're putting in out there. Keep it up. Keep it up. You're making a difference. And um, I encourage everyone else to do the same. Once again, Pheasant Fest is coming up. We're going to be there. We want to meet you and uh, look forward to that. So um, I guess that's where I'm going to leave it today. Uh, until next week, um, we'll be back with another episode. I've got a lot of exciting guests and topics that I'm really looking forward to digging into. So I hope you'll hope you'll keep coming back. And I hope that if there's something you want to hear us talk about, that you'll reach out to me and let me know what it is that you want me to discuss that is near and dear to your heart and would be enjoyable for you because I think if it's enjoyable to you, it's enjoyable to other people that are listening and that's the goal here with the show. So until next time, I'm Travis Frank reminding you to take the time to introduce someone new to the field. <laughs>